You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good afternoon and welcome to the ODI. I'm Joy Ladico. Uh, I uh, am a writer and editor at the London Evening Standard newspaper. Um, I'm also the founder of a club called Trouble, which is a pop-up club that pops up once or twice a year, um, which uh, deals with, which has women on stage talking about their expertise. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be here today as the chair of this uh, incredibly high-level panel. Um, the distinguished members of the high um, of the high-level panel on women's economic empowerment, who've been tasked by the UN Secretary General Ban Ki Moon with providing leadership on how to close global economic gender gaps, are. The, uh, we have uh, three representatives here today, four representatives here today, who are going to uh, enter into conversation with those in the room and those on Twitter and in the outside world and hopefully come up with some interesting, rather constructive uh, ideas for them to take back to the panel. So a little bit of background. Uh, some of these very broad points which you'd already expect. Um, gender equality, inequalities uh, in economic participation and the distribution of economic resources persist globally. Women remain disproportionately affected by poverty, discrimination, and exploitation. Gender discrimination means women often end up in insecure low-wage jobs and constitute a small minority of those in senior management positions. It curtails access to economic assets such as land and loans, and it limits participation in shaping economic and social policies. And because women perform the bulk of household and unpaid care work, their economic opportunities are limited. When they do work, their unpaid work in the home does not decrease, as recent ODI research shows. <clears throat> the realisation of these economic injustices and equality will be crucial to governments for governments to achieve their sustainable development goals by 2030, which have targets related to women's economic empowerment throughout. Earlier this year, as I mentioned earlier, Ban Ki-moon announced the first women's first high-level panel on world, women's economic empowerment. Sorry, it's a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, with the aims of providing some leadership on this and how to close down this global economic gap. We have in it, there are leaders from the IMF, the World Bank, UN women, economic experts, academics, trade union leaders, uh, representatives of civil society and government. And they're all committed to identifying the most promising and workable and practical solutions to fast track women's economic empowerment. The panel members are taking part in consultations around the world that will inform their first report uh, due in September 2016, and I'm very much hoping uh, some, of the, some of the feedback will be coming from this room uh, itself. Um, so this isn't a conventional panel uh, event. The panel members are here to listen to you, whether you're in the room or you're watching online uh, or following uh, on Twitter using hashtag empowerwomen24 underscore seven. So in a while, I'm going to be calling on all of you uh, to tell the panel members what you believe will make a real difference for women's empowerment and uh, develop ideas with them. So I would like to introduce our four members. We have uh, Fiza Fahan, who is the chief executive of the Bush Foundation uh, in Pakistan, and she works on renewable energy and on women's economic <coughs> empowerment and has beautifully meshed the two um, through, as we were talking earlier, in particular, solar energy. We have Tina Fordham, who is uh, managing director and chief global global policy analyst uh, at City Research, who's sitting at the far end here. Alicia Giron? Yes, Giron. Giron. Yeah. <laughs> is professor at the Economic Research Institute of the National University of Mexico and is a feminist economist, a term that, in fact, I've not come across before. And finally, um, we have the Right Honourable... Well, actually, it's just a lack of economists, so it's, yes. <laughs> it's just a very small subset. Um, 
The, and finally, we have the Right Honourable Justin Greening, MP, who's Secretary of State of International Development UK and a, a prime mover uh, in this uh, UN panel. Um, before I turn to them, I'm going to introduce Claire Melamud, uh, who's the Managing Director of ODI, and she's going to give us a, a brief presentation which should set the stage for this. Thank you very much, Joy. And uh, on behalf of ODI, I'd like to first of all welcome you all to this consultation. We've been absolutely delighted over the last few weeks here to be working in close collaboration with the uh, high-level panel, Secretariat, um, and with the UK's Department for International Development on this critical issue. As we all know, all of us who work on gender and on women's rights, without economic freedoms, women's political and social freedoms will always be just part of the, of the story. Getting change is, is always partly about evidence and mostly about politics. And as we've seen, I think, this model, as we've seen many times on different issues over the last few years, this model of bringing together a panel which combines experience, knowledge, and critically political clout to focus on a specific issue is a great way to focus minds and to start to bring change. So we are very hopeful of the work of the panel. And I am strongly suspecting that the fact that so many of you, this is, we have an absolutely full house today, including standing room only, quite literally, um, have joined us in this room and also several hundred watching online from many different countries suggest that you too are hopeful about the work of this panel. So we thank you all. ODI's business is, of course, the development of evidence, defining problems and also suggesting solutions. Gender issues and the scandal of discrimination against women and girls has always been a core part of what we think about here in this building and led so magnificently by Caroline Harper and her team. Most recently, we launched a flagship report on childcare. I think I recognise some familiar faces in the room from, from that event. Um, which clearly highlighted the way in which women's responsibilities for care significantly limit their economic opportunities. And it's one of the things that I'm sure the panel will be returning to. Central to that report was choice, the choice of individual women and girls to lead the lives they want and the removal of the barriers that constrain and limit those choices. And what I think is interesting here in the work of the panel is the way that we've come very much to choice, both from a women's rights perspective but also, of course, choices, individual and social choices, are very much the core business of economics as well. Economics is built on an analysis of choice, individual choice, and choice under circumstances of constrained resources by individuals and by governments. And this is an interesting meeting point of those two ways of thinking. So as you deliberate amongst yourselves and you talk to the many academics, the civil society organisations, people in this room, the business leaders and the others who would all be giving you good advice. The one thing I would like to say today before we start this conversation is to please also keep in mind the views and experiences of the women themselves who are at the centre of this story. Women's lives and experiences are absolutely key to, to defining the priorities for change. Our research in the childcare report, for example, on childcare with women in India employed on tobacco farms showed how if women are asked, they often know exactly what's holding them back economically. Um, in this case, when they were asked, the women in this particular village were absolutely clear that lack of childcare was restricting their economic opportunities. You see a quote from one of the women we talked to there. And as a consequence, the NGO who, they were, who was leading the focus groups worked with the women to put pressure on employers to start childcare facilities for the women. 
So this policy is an small example of something which I think writ large suggests that policy change needs to come from the priorities of women themselves and from their own analysis of what they need and also to reflect the reality, of course, of women's multifaceted lives and roles. Like, every, like all of, like, you know, women, neither women nor men are simply economic agents. We're talking about complex social relationships and responsibilities. Of course, we can't, unfortunately, uh, ask all women everywhere what they want. But there is a wealth of qualitative research and data from opinion polls which can shed a light on this critical piece of the jigsaw. The frustration with the lack of choice and the way that restricts women's lives, for example, comes out clearly in some data that we're working with at the moment from the Gallup World Poll, which is conducted in more than 160 countries, covers about 99% of the world's population. We're currently in the middle of analysing this data set, which has more than 1.5 million data points, so it's quite a job. But we're going to have more findings from this data available to shed some of the light on the issues we're talking about today in a few weeks. So globally, what we, what we see from a very beginning, a sort of initial look at this data is that the poorest women, not surprisingly, are, the le least, are less satisfied than richer women with their working lives. But among the poorest women, those who are working full-time are the most satisfied with their jobs. And women working part-time but who wanted full-time work, again, perhaps unsurprisingly, are the least satisfied. But this speaks to a general point that less choice for women over their working lives leads to less satisfaction with that aspect of their lives. And at the extremes, of course, making choices in situations where they have very few choices to earn an income can expose women and girls to risks of abuse and exploitation, as our research with girls in Ethiopia who migrated to work as maids has shown. And again, there's an extract from our report on that issue in fr on front of you. So, the urgency of increasing choice in itself justifies a focus on women's economic empowerment. And of course, we'll be hearing, I expect today, from some of the other economic, social, broader benefits that, that uh, this kind of um, focus can bring. But of course, in some senses, we all know that. That's why a lot of us are here. The panel's job is to chart a way to get there. And I think one of the sort of key messages from the weight of ODI's research over the years is that if, we, if, one, if the panel's job is, in a sense, to write us a map towards women's economic empowerment, then women and girls need to be at your side helping to plot the course. So we're, we hope, I hope, that you will think big. We're not talking small-scale projects here. This is a hugely ambitious endeavour. Ambitious changes to legal and economic frameworks and social and gender norms which govern behaviour. And broad, this is not just about jobs or just about loans, or, but it's about all of the factors which limit choice and in the end lim limit women's well-beings, well-being. And of course, we hope that you will keep the complicated, multifaceted lives, hopes and desires of real women and girls around the world right at the heart of what you do. So I'm hugely looking forward to this afternoon's discussion. If I, if I may abuse my position for a moment and kick us off by just asking the panel a question, <laughs> which you don't have to answer right now, whenever Joy says you can. Um, I'd like to leave the panel members with just one question. So right now you're at the beginning of the process, um, doing a lot of consultations, thinking about the structure of the report. My question is, when you get to the end of this process, what's the one thing that you most hope that this panel will be remembered for? Thank you very much. Thank you, Claire. And uh, I'd now like to have the honour of welcoming 
the Right Honourable Justine Greening, uh, Secretary of State for International Development, and she is one of the founding members of the High Level Panel on Women's Economic Empowerment. She'll be taking, uh, giving us a short speech. Yes. Um, just to really um, add my voice of welcome to everyone here today, uh, especially my co-panellists, um, Fiza Vahan, uh, Tina Fordham and Alicia Hiron as well. And of course you, Joy, thank you for, for being prepared to moderate today. Um, it's much appreciated. And, and to ODI, of course, for hosting this and for all of the, the evidence-based research that you do that is helping to not only build the case for change, but also start to help us understand how we can deliver change as well. I really just wanted to make a few very quick points, really. Um, I mean, the main question we have to ask ourselves today is if we're going to achieve women's economic empowerment, what is it going to take? So my sense is that um, we've seen progress in women's rights um, across the board, but it's been far too slow. And I gave a speech here um, earlier this year where I, I basically said I, I felt that we needed to really turbocharge that process. And there was a, a fantastic uh, report by the World Economic Forum that looked at women's education, looked at participation and voice, you know, women being able to be part of the politics around them uh, and their ability to be part of uh, their economy. And it basically said if, if we improved at the same rate um, in the future as we have done in the past, it would take another 117 years until we got gender equality. Well, I certainly haven't got that long to wait. I don't know about any of the rest of you. So this panel is about how we take one part of that and really give it a big boost. We really turbocharge it. And in doing so, I believe, actually, it will pull the other parts with it as well. I think that when um, people have the chance to lift their, lift their sights above simply surviving day to day and they have assets of their own, and they have financial independence of their own, that's when they're able to actually start looking around and saying, well, is this the kind of community, the kind of world, the kind of opportunities for me and my family that I'm actually happy about? They can ask themselves some of those broader questions about their lives that they just don't get chance to even think about when every day um, is simply a struggle to get through it. So this is about financial independence as much as anything else uh, for girls and women, which is about a rights agenda. But I happen to think it's also much more broad than that. This is about women's economic empowerment, which is not just good for girls and women. It's good for development. I have said a million times now, no, no country can successfully develop sustainably if it leaves half of its population out of that progress. You invest in infrastructure, you invest in education. Well, if only half of your human capital gets chance to benefit from it and to help it uh, generate a, a return for that country, then the investment can only work half as hard and be half as successful. It is vital that women are part of development as well. And I think it's good for business. I think in the end, this is about business having a much broader market, a much broader set of consumers, a much broader set of people that are able to be part of not only its workforce, but its management, its leadership. And I think fundamentally, um, it's vital for, for those three things. So it's good for women, it's good for development, and it's good mm -hmm. for business. And the challenge with this agenda is just such a broad spectrum across the world of women's women's empowerment as it stands. There are some countries where 
even having the chance to have a job is a stretch in and of itself. There are other countries like ours where women are in work, but actually there are still too many glass ceilings and we still don't see women represented at the most senior levels in enough sectors and around enough board tables in our country, although we've made significant progress. So there's a breadth to this that's a real challenge, but we have to somehow, through this work on the panel, find a way through all of that. And I, I think for me, um, you just talked about, the, it, I think politics works at its best when it works with the grain of human nature. And I think this panel can be powerful because it's working with the grain of human nature, which is actually women want to play a role too. And they should have that chance and that choice to be able to do that wherever they are in our world. This panel, to me, is a huge opportunity. It's the biggest opportunity I think we've had to really push women's empowerment, economic empowerment forward. Um, we have a comparatively short time frame ahead of us to produce a report in time for the United Nations General Assembly and the Secretary General who set up this panel in September. What I want to see and why we want to do this outreach is this needs to be a report not about the problems but about what the solutions are and it needs to be more than just a list of things that can help this thing be tackled, women's economic empowerment, it needs to be a proper strategy. Um, so yes, it needs to be a map, but it needs to set out how all the things relate to one another and then how we steer our way through um, to, to really having a step change on improving women's economic empowerment. We've got all the right people on the panel, but this outreach needs to reflect that. So it needs to reflect what governments need to do and reach out to those people. It needs to reflect what civil society can do and reach out to civil society. It needs critically to reflect on what business can do using its transformative, not only its network, but its capital and its finance cl how, uh, clout that it can bring and, and reach out to business. Um, we need to reach out to those other transformational networks like the World Bank and the IMF, and it's fantastic that both Jim Kim and Christine Lagarde are on the panel as well. So we've got the right people. We just now need to uh, use this opportunity, and today is part of that because we have all been tasked with doing outreach around the world. Um, and, of course, uh, for me, that meant being here in Europe and, and certainly here in my own country uh, running this meeting, which is really important for us to hear from you as much as anything else um, about what you feel needs to be on the, agen the agenda, but also critically um, what you think some of the key uh, solutions might be that we should be focusing on and looking at. And, and the key thing for me, finally, is scale. I think there are lots of great ideas out there, but the question is, what can we do at scale that's really going to shift women's prospects in the future and quickly as well? Um, this needs to be a very practical report that we come out with in the end. Um, lots of people have mentioned lots of things. Um, partly it's about how can we have more and better jobs. Partly it's about how can we make the informal sector really uh, work more financially for women. Partly it's about access to any of those opportunities on employment and livelihoods and, and removing some of the barriers that hold women back from accessing them. We've mentioned um, unpaid care, but that's one of the things, not all of the, the list. So 
there's a huge agenda to look at. Um, but with your help, I really do think we just have this once in a generation opportunity to pull together all of this work, all of this thinking, and really look at it in the round and say, what's it going to take to shift the dial on this women's economic empowerment? So that's our exam question. No one else is going to fix this. So there isn't some other version of planet Earth where there's another group of people who's going to work their way through it. Um, it might be some of the ideas and some of the discussion in the room that we have today that might be the pivotal moment that particularly shapes the report. So let's take the responsibility for, for trying to actually make sure that this is a historic report that has a historic impact in the end. Thank you. Thank you very much, Justine. Um, now, we, I'm just going to ask uh, our panel members a few little questions so you get a flavour of what their interests are and what they do, um, which will hopefully allow you to know how to direct your questions. I'm going to talk first to Fiza, who is the uh, chief executive of the Bush Foundation. Um, now, you are pioneering uh, Pakistan's clean energy. It's quite an yes. innovative project. Do you tell us just a little bit about that? But you're also one of Pakistan's leading businesswomen, and this is noticeable in the fact there aren't that many businesswomen. Uh, Pakistan is essentially a kind of two-tier society, um, but business is not where the top tier go. They go into government, they go into structured roles. Can you talk about mm -hmm. how, what's going on at that top level as well? Sure. So, <clears throat> um, firstly, thank you all for coming. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, pleasure to talk to all of you and get your insights and questions. Um, just to establish a little context for Pakistan first, Pakistan is a country with 26% of female labor force participation, um, which is the second lowest in the, in the world. And out of this, 26%, 32% of the women have a college degree, uh, which means they are at least, uh, they have the potential to be on a senior position of management or a government-level job, or set up a company or entrepreneurship. Um, out of that 32%, 12% of the women are employed in the urban sector, and out of that 12%, we're, we're just going down the, the tier here, 1.2% of the women are in senior-level positions. And that, too, only in very conventional industries of fashion, retail, marketing, consumer products. Um, it, it, it became a coincidence how I sort of took on the lead with a very non-conventional sector of energy in the private, in the private business, uh, being not just a woman, but being a young woman. And today, there are only two women that are leading energy companies in Pakistan. One is myself, and there's another one in the public sector. And usually, there's only me in a room full of 200, 500 men. Um, and this is not just in Pakistan. We were recently at a delegation with the Pak Dineda, Denmark delegation. And there were 30 companies from Denmark and Pakistan in energy. And I was the only woman in that entire delegation. So that gave me the first time perspective that this problem of women leading non-conventional sectors like energy is not just for Pakistan, but it's a global problem that we need to tackle. Um, now, for me, the main reason behind this to be a problem, it's, there's no one main reason. Uh, we all know it's a multi-dimensional, multi-layered, very complex problem. Uh, but the top three that I can sort of filter out uh, would be the one would be lack of economic opportunities that Claire just mentioned, Justin just mentioned. So lack of economic opportunities in both the private sector and the public sector, which has a multi-tiered problem structured within itself. Um, the second would be primarily the stereotypes and the conventional norms and mindsets of people, especially from where I come from, especially from South Asia and Pakistan, where women are supposed to play a specific role of being a caretaker, of being a mother, of being a daughter-in-law, um, a daughter, and, uh, and, and not entirely thinking about her as a professional, having her own dreams, 
where there is a compromise in other domains of life. And third would be the lack of role models and the lack of mentors, real life people. Um, and now where I'm sitting here at the UN High Level Panel, I'm trying to achieve two things. One, to be able to actually create a tangible action for the rest of the women in Pakistan through my role here as a UN High Level Panelist. And second, to be able to motivate, influence, and mentor more women to take up and follow their dreams like I did. I did it by coincidence, but I think if more mentoring and counseling happens and people, women would actually start taking a stand for themselves which I think is the main solution to all the problems that exist. I think also one of the other curiosities, essentially you're in the new section of the um, uh, energy industry. The old section is obviously dominated by miners who, and sorry, uh, you know, drillers and a really male work workforce who exactly. gradually work their way up through the system. So you've broken it by actually finding an innovation, which ultimately is also good for environmental uh, Absolutely. concerns. Absolutely. Um, and we had to get an approval, <coughs> I must add this. Uh, when I was becoming the CEO of Baksh Foundation, we actually get a, had to get a special approval by the State Bank of Pakistan to allow a young woman to be uh, the serious? CEO. Yes, yes. Extraordinary. Because they had a minimum criteria of 15 years of work experience and a grey-haired man. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to uh, Tina, who um, it has many accolades to her name. Um, she's also been she's cited as one of the top 100 most influential women in finance and 40 women to watch um, when you joined City. Now, um, Tina's unusual in that she comes in <coughs> as an analyst into a, a banking institution and essentially analyzes data and feeds them information um, which hopefully influences decisions. Um, can we talk a little bit about the finance sector and... Um, why that should be involved with the conversation about uh, women's economic empowerment and indeed how, how deeply women are involved in the finance sector. Well, there's so many ways to answer that question, but I feel so sorry for myself coming after Pfizer, who is my hero and is, is this incredibly trailblazing, groundbreaking person. Um, but I can, I can add a little bit about how when you are different and when you, when you stand out to start with, um, you can feel sorry for yourself about that, or you can just decide everyone's going to remember you every room you're in and every time you speak. And that's what I decided to do, and uh, it's worked out pretty well. It, in my day job at City, I'm the first and only chief global political analyst working for a major financial institution. Um, I'm not a gender specialist, but I came down this road when I was asked um, please, can you write something about women? Now, I wouldn't like to say it was because I was one of the only ones they had. Um, but um, I thought, right, write something about women. And we were just coming out of the, the, the worst of the financial crisis, and I heard um, a woman speak who was Hillary Clinton's first uh, chief ambassador to, to women, and that's Melanne Verveer. And she gave a, a talk that I heard at Oxford about um, how if you were to increase the rates of female labor force participation, the effect would be greater than that of rising China and India combined. Now, in my world, in banking, you know, that's astonishing. And I said, if this is true, why isn't everybody talking about it? So what I did was um, hire my friend who worked for Hillary Clinton as the first chief economist. Lots of firsts, you'll notice. When you're the first, you don't have anything to live up to. This is, this is highly recommended um, way of going. You can establish the benchmark. So Heidi Kriebel Redeker and I wrote this port, report, Women in the Global Economy, um, uh, Global Growth Generators. And it's a very macro report in cities kind of a white paper format. But it wasn't actually the writing of the paper that uh, moved me and, and um, inspired me so much. It was when I took it around the world hosting panels in a lot of different 
markets from Japan where they are in a panic about increasing female labor force participation because if you have demographic challenges that Japan does and you don't like immigration, getting your female labor force to, to work is, is an imperative. Um, to the United States where I had almost no men come to our talk as opposed to in Japan where I was about half. Um, I did it in the Middle East and in many places and by the end of it I realized that there is huge interest from the private sector both in terms of women working in the industry but also from uh, companies. For investors I think it will take longer to feed through to, to be honest because it's, it's more abstract but if you are a fast-moving consumer goods company, women are your, your main clients and they are way ahead in fact of, of others in understanding women as consumers, um, women as people. So the, I realized that the, the opportunity is huge and we are now within City Research taking on gender economics as one of our mainstream research topics which means in addition to covering the UK referendum, the US elections and all the stuff I do in my day job, I've got to come up with a successor report to this, but it has been a, a very um, a fruitful kind of a, a seam of our research, so there will be more of that. So at the institution level, on the research side, we can um, cover this from an analytical, technical perspective that focuses on the implications. You know, what if we close the gap? What if we closed it by this much? What would translate into for, for different countries? That is not very easy, by the way, as Alicia knows. She yeah. is at the forefront of a very difficult um, discipline, which has been a microeconomic topic. So to translate that into the macro space requires uh, creativity and a different way of thinking. You wouldn't find, you know, the U.S. Treasury thinking about the U.S. budget with a gender lens. Mm -hmm. And if you ask them the gender impact, uh, they wouldn't be able to tell you you are changing that here and I think the UK can really lead the way. So <coughs> I was hugely inspired. I'm taking a long time to answer your question. You are. But, um, but don't worry, I'm getting there. This is, the, this is, why, this is why I'm sitting here. At the institution <coughs> level, um, banks like Citi are working on financial inclusion. I think that we in the panel could help Citi and the others that are doing this to think about gender-based financial inclusion because they're already doing this. We've kind of had an evolution from microfinance um, which still goes on, of course, to the financial inclusion agenda, and that also is a post-financial crisis imperative. So what I have found is great receptivity to doing this, but a request for how to do it. How, how do we do this, and what are the best ways of doing it? Okay, and on that point, I'm going to hand you over to Alicia, who is a leading Mexican economist. Um, she's been president of the International Association of Feminist Economists. Um, now... Some people have been saying the high-level panel can only really um, have any real impact if governments take it seriously. Um, and to date, government action has been a sort of little bit of a, this is a <laughs> perennial problem. How do you do it? What do you do? How do you get into the, the government psyche and start fiddling with things? Well, uh, first of all, well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm very happy to be here and to talk about our experience. Well, the first point is that public policies are very related with women economic empowerment. There's a fabulous report that made a follow economic doubles in 2006 about the global gender gap. And when we were, I, I came from the fin financial issues, and then I always, I always say that I, I have to confess that I arrived to the gender issues, but because we were um, seeing how the financial crisis, especially the banking crisis in Mexico, uh, the effect that it has in, in women. So when we they see all these austerity 
policies that we have had in Mexico, especially because Mexico has been, the, I think, the, the best student of all these austerity uh, policies. Uh, we we saw how the especially the public uh, uh, the, the for example the the budget the social budget has been reduced during the 80s especially in education in health and in living. What happened is that we have <coughs> um, a, a very huge problems in the family and that in the microeconomic level. So the policies, especially economic policies, are in the middle of this macroeconomic how does the macroeconomic work and the microeconomic level. So in the mesoeconomic, who was very difficult for me to understand these public policies because everybody talks about public policies, oh, the public policies, public policies, and then, well, well, how, how they are inserted. All the decisions that you have in the financial markets, and especially the effect that they have in the macroeconomic, are immediately the effect is in the microeconomic and especially in the households and in the families. So with the public policies is like the, 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 the principal hand of the state to manage all the social problems that you have. What? When you have austerity problems and when you reduce the employment in the public sector, you are going to uh, reduce the consume and you are going to reduce also the profits of the entrepreneurs because nobody's going to consume or what happened you are going to have a huge amount of peop many people or young people and very well educated people that has to migrate to other countries because they have to find a job and the other thing that it is very important that most of these jobs when you don't find a job or you have a very a, a very poor education and you don't have an employment, most of those people, and especially young people, goes to not only informal uh, economy, but also to the narco-economic. So this is, this is real huge. And the government, the government and the states has to be aware of what we are doing with our economic uh, policies, especially because most of the policies, the public policies, are approved in the parliament. And so that is very, very important because we, in democratic re regime, we elect our uh, people that are in the parliament, but most of the time they don't see these close relations with the macroeconomic and the microeconomic. So, uh, for if you, we want to have more women economic empowerment, and women economic empowerment is really very important, because you are going to be very, uh, well, you are going to have uh, uh, proper employment, a better income, and then you are going to be also to have better income for your family. So um, I think public policies is very important, and it is very related with the central bank policy. Not only the central, the, why the central policy? Because it is the employment of last resort. From a heterodox uh, view, the, uh, the central bank is the employment of last resort. And this has to be in the middle of these public policies. And I think that we have to be aware of what's going in the global, in the global economy. It's after seven years or eight years, almost a decade of the financial crisis, 
we are not having growth, we are not having development, and that is a, a real a problem. Okay, I'm going to stop you there. And so we've now got some rather broad perspectives, both from the practicing government level, from uh, the economist's critique of the government, from business itself, and from more macro level as to how um, business and finance can work together. And this is the point at which we open it out to the audience, both the physical audience here and the digital audience. Um, and the question, the broad question is that in your experience, what will make a real difference to women's economic empowerment? Um, and I'd quite like you to take on Justine Greening's point about the idea that you can ha there are a lot of individual ideas, but how do we take ideas to scale? How does it become a kind of broad enough thing to actually implement change? Um, I'm going to invite you to ask questions. I'd really like you to keep them down to 30, 45 seconds so we can have as many as possible. So make sure that you've thought your question through from beginning to end before opening your mouth. And can you please state your name and your organisation um, at the beginning of the questions? We know how to identify you and also to thank you for your uh, brilliant interjections and ideas at the end of it. Um, we've also got online viewers. Um, I'm hoping the technology is working. If not, you might see a bit of scurrying around. So, um, first of all, can I take some questions from this room? Now, don't be shy at all. We have a question. It's always the men who put their hands up first. Three men. <laughs> um, I'm going to start over here with um, the... Um, uh, just behind you, just behind you, actually. Hello. Hello. Uh, my name is Jan Grassley. I'm a consultant and I'm former president of UN Women UK. Uh, I'm, so a little statement first, I'm afraid. Companies speak about having a strong purpose to maintain focus on business success. To maintain a strong focus on achieving women's equality and economic empowerment, I think we need to anchor purpose with systemic approved change for the benefit of society. I think you touched on that. International and national legislation starts the process, but attitudinal changes about women's role in society take longer and are most challenging. Changing attitudes towards women and girls' movements, such as He for She campaign, which has been taken up by government, the corporate sector, and civil society, start the process. But do you feel that education and training, access to finance, knowledge, and expertise are really the key criteria for helping women. Uh, hello, I'm Jerry Boyle from Care International. Um, so really my point would be, we've heard from both the Secretary of State and Tina Fordham, I think in um, mentioning of the importance of financial inclusion, which we as Care as an organization have worked on for 25 years. Um, and really believe very strongly that giving women access to savings, uh, particularly for women really in the poorest communities, is absolutely central to beginning the process of economic empowerment. And within that, we also think that women's savings groups can really be the one of the key first steps towards women achieving broader empowerment and being able to change the attitudes of the men and boys around them, which we do in a lot of our work. So my question is, given that we've already got about 10 million people in sub-Saharan Africa in savings groups, so it is a, it is a, a, a um, technique that works at scale, we already know. Um, to what extent would the panel like to comment on where we could find the financing to extend those savings groups to every woman on the planet who needs one, who needs access to one? 
Good. Uh, next question, I believe you had your hand up. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Andrea Milan and I work for UN Women. Um, my question relates to the importance of making sure that any recommendation of the panel does not leave migrants and refugees behind. The reason why I say this is because we have almost 120 million uh, migrant women and refugee women. Um, and also because this year, and particularly in September, we, we not only have the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity of the first report of the high-level panel, but there's also going to be a very important meeting on addressing large movements and refugees of refugees and migrants in New York. It's going to be a summit at the uh, heads of state level. So my question is whether the panel is considering uh, two important aspects. The first one being that its recommendations are always inclusive for migrants. So basically that any m measure that, is a, that aims at promoting women's economic empowerment is not linked necessarily to citizenship residence and so that it can be applied to every woman who is in a certain territory. And the second question is whether the panel is thinking about uh, addressing some of the specific areas that would make a difference for these almost 120 million migrants, uh, such as, for example, uh, the, the Domestic Workers Convention. We know that more than 80 percent of uh, migrants, uh, of domestic workers worldwide are women, and most of them are migrants. And other great sources of, of great policies for areas of origin, transit, and destination, <laughs> such as, for example, the CEDAW General Recommendation number 26, that is specifically on women migrant workers. So whether you will always take a migration perspective in all recommendations, and whether you, you are thinking about acting specifically okay. on the specificities. For Thank migrants. you very much. Um, we take one question from the gentleman here, and then the uh, woman in the uh, orange top at the end of the row. Thank you, Tom Sanderson from BBC Media Action. Um, Fisa, you mentioned that uh, one barrier is lack of role models and stereotyping and maybe lack of confidence. <coughs> Does the panel think that media interventions, and BBC and I know Girl Hub have done quite a number of interventions like this, can help at scale to support women and help them overcome such barriers? Okay. Just at the end of the row. And then we'll move back to the panel. Hello, uh, Stacey Adams from Rally International. Um, we've just done a consultation in country around women's empowerment and uh, in terms of entrepreneurship. And one of the big barriers they're telling us is around safety and security. Um, they're not actually confident to, say, move villages for jobs. They're not even sometimes confident within villages around the impact of them having more money in relation to the impact on family or the risk of violence. Um, and I wonder to what extent that's being addressed. Okay, there's quite a, a broad range of questions. Um, I'm going to pick out... Um, three to start with, and if other people would like to then enhance the other ones, I'm very happy to come back to them. Um, the first one is from Tom from the BBC, which is about media intervention. Now, this, is, this does actually have a kind of a wide-scale impact, if used correctly, um, and I'd like to, to ask uh, all four of you for your expertise on that. Um, the point from, sorry, was it Gerard? Jerry, um, on, um, on banking and how to actually expand banking resources to uh, essentially people who are at the bottom of the scale and introduce them into a financial, uh, financial life in the beginnings of the economy. Um, and the third one actually is on refugees, which I, is, is obviously uh, not, uh, is, a, is a section, but it's not the whole thing we're talking about. But these are potentially women who are moving into 
new communities and there is a chance to change them. So if I could just ask you for a couple of brief thoughts on whichever of those subjects grabs you most. I'm going to start with you, Justine. Okay, I mean, I'm, this, I think one of the trickiest things to unlock is this issue of social norms, both actually outside of work, but also inside work. Um, there was this research then done that showed that uh, girls growing up, I, I think it was in one part of sub-Saharan Africa, had big ideas about what they wanted to do if you asked them age seven to eight. By the time they were 13, their, their attitudes were bang in line with their parents. So clearly, you know, something is happening in the intervening period. So this issue of attitudes and then how role models can help aim keep expectations and, and aim attitudes uh, higher rather than lower is really important to my mind. And I think it's a what works agenda. You know, there, there are role models internationally, nationally, and also locally. And I think grounded <coughs> role models, you know, perhaps whether it's someone in your town, in your village, in your family, who can be that one person who encourages you and, and, and helps you <coughs> work out where you want to get to um, is critical. And actually, a lot of the discussions that we have um, underlined that it can just be one con one contact that can be enough. Um, so that's the the powerful thing about role models. It doesn't have to be multifaceted. It can be one discussion that changes someone's life. On on the second couple of um, points, um, I mean, and, and your point, Jerry, about <coughs> savings. You know, I agree with that. And it's about having a business case. And what we need to understand is really what the broader um, macroeconomic value is of this and I think once you start to capture those broader benefits alongside the ones for the individual then you start to understand if you like what the global public good or the national public good is that makes it more investable by not just you know departments like my own but by business and by government and then on the last piece um, I mean I think we're seeing a really welcome shift in um, the policy approach and investment approach in relation to migration and refugees right now. And one of the most important shifts we're seeing is this understanding that actually jobs is a key part of how you help everyone. And I think that has to extend to jobs in, in the context of women being able to get them. It, it makes so much sense to enable people to be able to support themselves rather than having them totally reliant on the international humanitarian system combined with the fact that, you know, that strips people of their dignity if it persists um, over a protracted period of time, and it's not good for host communities in the end either. But I would also say that I think what this shows is that, um, you know, signing up to resolutions and policies, one thing, the key is delivery. And that's what we need to work through on this report, is how can we actually make sure that things get delivered? And partly that's about some of the rest of what needs to change around not just governments but but sort of investment business and attitudes and um, tina can i ask you about the business uh, about the banking question um i know it's sort of completely different scale from the banking you do but do have, is, does any part of your research look at how to engage women in finance at that level in terms of saving and economic education well not yet but you've given me a very good idea for one of the chapters in the in the next report <laughs> Um, I have to answer from, from my perspective as a political scientist working in, in research because I'm not a spokesperson for the bank and I don't work on that side of things. But, uh, you know, as a research analyst, I know what we need more of is data. Um, it's just there are so many problems and so many challenges 
um, to get a sense of how to best target resources, how to understand the scale of the problem and the potential upside is what we need to address any of these issues. And I, I know, as a research analyst, that it's very hard to do. So I think to be as technical as possible um, is, is crucial. I mean, we talk about what in the report what I call the WG3 effect and things like title, access to savings, to mortgages, to credits, and all of this is yeah. a big part of realizing it. Um, but maybe to tie in with the refugee issue, one of the things that, that I uh, feel very conscious of is that whether it's the, the refugee crisis or even the diversity challenge or any of these big macro challenges, that there's a, a sense of fatigue um, about the scale of the scale of these issues and how to address them. And so I always think about Angela Merkel and her approach as a as quantum physicist now in government, which is to break things into small pieces so you don't get um, overwhelmed. And I think that's what we have to do with any of these things, because we're probably going to have to prioritize and sequence. And, and to do that, we have to understand what we can do and which aspects can have the biggest effect. Can mm -hmm. I say something about the safety? Yes, is, that, is that allowed? Um, that's fine. Um, in a previous research paper I did called um, Vox Populi Risk, which looked at uh, the wave of, of protests post-Arab Spring um, and the rise of, of uh, uh, populist and non-mainstream political figures, we looked at um, the large-scale protests in a number of emerging markets countries. Um, and one of them, of course, was in India, uh, following the horrific rape and murder of the young woman coming home from the cinema. Mm. Um, and the way that um, I, I think that we might think about this is the extent to which it mobilized India's new middle classes who were demanding more of their leadership, of their police, and of men in society so that uh, they're not educating their daughters so that it's not uh, safe for them to be able to take a bus home from a cinema, let alone women villagers trying to, to travel to go places to, to get things done. So while that was a, a, a horrible event, it certainly focused minds um, in, a, in a powerful way. So I think that social change, we must remember, is, is unsettling and destabilizing. Um, but these kinds of um, processes can also can focus minds about the, what needs to be done and really test the limits of what's no longer socially acceptable, if that makes sense. Can I, can I just come in on that? There's a push-pull thing here. I mean, sometimes. Um, politicians are behind mm. where people are and you get you get a, a, a situation that really demonstrates that and the politics has to catch up and then there are other times when actually politicians can really pull things along through public policy and I think it's it's working out which side you're on in terms of whether it's a push thing or a pull thing in in these different elements of this problem that I think is partly the key to success so there are some places where it is absolutely about <coughs> policy to give it a shove there are other points where frankly laws just need to catch up with where society expects them to be but in doing so it can draw a line under where a country has got to that is really important to sort of frankly underpin that change for good I would also say credit mm. to the media at this point in time for actually Absolutely, having yeah. taken totally. a story that was essentially a kind of uh, an Indian national story and turned it into a global story mm. to the point where India itself felt the pressure of the world looking at it and asking how it could have a society in which, su in which thing, such things happened. Um, so it's a brief answer to Tom's question. Um, I'd, I'd like to just take a few more questions from uh, the audience. S somebody in the back corner of the room. I've lost track of where the microphones are. There's one coming towards you. Um, 
add, can we have a question from this lady here? Sorry, do go ahead. Hi, this is Claire Twelvetrees from the Sheree Blair Foundation for Women. We work with women entrepreneurs to grow and scale their businesses. We help them through capacity building, training and technology. Just come back from Rwanda at the World Economic Forum where actually we're working with care and I'm really glad that you raised that um, the scale point because I think that actually having 10 million in saving groups is a way to potentially reach the scale that we're looking for. So in Rwanda we were working with care to use mobile technology in terms of um, working also with the Kenya Commercial Bank to enhance the, available, the availability of financial products that were available for women. It's not an easy journey. There, are journey, there are many challenges, but I think my question is this, I think in order to reach that scale, how can we leverage technology and the financial sector in order to, to, to reach more women and to in, empower them financially? Thanks. Uh, question here. Hi, I'm Helen Parker. I work at the water team here at ODI. Um, so we've already talked about the issues that constrain women in relation to childcare burdens, in relation to access to credit. Another major issue, as you know, is access to safe water and sanitation. I want to know how the panel thinks we can begin to address these multiple constraining factors which um, reduce women's time that they have for productive activities. Like, How can we address the sort of supply side constraints as well as you know, creating more jobs and um, creating quotas and creating economic opportunities. Uh, question from here in the front row. Thank you. Um, I'm Diane Sheard from the One Campaign. And I have a question a bit um, more broadly, um, just economic empowerment. In our um, property sexist report, one of the um, constraints in actually writing the report is a lack of data. And there's a, a serious uh, um, gender crisis in, in data, in, in, in fact, knowing where women are, knowing uh, how many girls there are, knowing how many um, girls uh, should have access to education, healthcare, etc. And I just wonder how we can use um, the work that the panel is doing and, and the work on economic empowerment to try and help support filling that um, data gap. And uh, another question from here in the front row. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Caroline Harper. I uh, work here at the ODI and lead the team on gender and exclusion and generations. Um, my question is, uh, I actually think you have to do many things at the same time, and you mm -hmm. can't make that many choices. And we are indeed doing many things at the same time around the world. Um, but my question specifically is what to do with the school age population. There's a big gain to be made. There, um, many uh, are not in school, but a lot are in school. And what would your priorities be um, for the school age population, boys and girls? Because in 10 years' time, they will be the women of the future. And there may be some big gains to be made there. And I would just add that um, I think there's a lot to be done around sexual and reproductive health in schools, because if you're not in control of your reproductive health, then how are you going to be economically empowered? Um, and we're going to start with that very specific question about <coughs> what are we going to teach the generation who are currently in schools. Uh, can I start with that with you, Fiza? What would you like to see as school education for the presumably 5 to 15-year-olds, both boys and girls? Hmm, that's very interesting. I haven't, I haven't really thought about that because we don't uh, work uh, with, with schools or curriculum. Um, but I would just like to take that a step up towards more of college and universities because that's what we're, we're really doing and maybe that can translate down as well. Um, in Pakistan alone, um, I'll just give you an example that we have around 1.1 million university graduates going out of college every year, out of which 62% uh, are usually women. 
but 48% uh, of these graduates never make it to any jobs. And another 15-20% make it to a job for a year or two before they get married. So perhaps this needs to be, again, taken back to the school level, to the early education years, to teach the girls that it's not just, you're not just getting an education to get into a good marriage proposal, which is a norm in countries like Pakistan. You're getting educated to be able to open your own doors to create an identity for yourself. And not just for uh, the universities and schools do not only need to focus on the girls themselves, but on their families and parents and engaging them to make them understand why education is important and why sort of transforming that education into a career is important because that's what, what the platform that the girls need. Uh, we've already started trying to do that in Pakistan, establishing mentoring councils for girls and their families in universities and, uh, and, and colleges. And perhaps you're right, that needs to sort of take a step back to the school level as well because that's really where the foundation begins. Okay. Who would like to say there was a question which had, uh, there was two, two, two questions quite related and two sides of the same coin. Um, one was about the absolute sort of drag on um, from you from on on um, basic life, which includes things like you know who's how do we get clean water, how do you do childcare, um, really fundamental things that hold mm. people back, uh, hold women back in particular in their progress. And at the other end of the spectrum, we started talking. Um, it was Claire over there talking about. Uh, technology and how you can start using technology to transform people's lives. Now, these are at two opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about how you get um, to women who really are still struggling with literally who's carrying the water to that level where you can transform, you know, you can do something transformational? Well, I think that one of the important things is that, oh, I'm sorry, that people that work for Audi is that the society of the future. And mm. I think this is very uh, this is very important because, especially fight related to the public policies. Public policies is the investment that me that we must create for a future society. And I will like maybe I just can answer immediately your the question yeah. about technology. But one of the things that I before uh, trying to answer your question, I want to put um, this in, on the floor and. Uh, what about remittance of the of migration? Most of the remittance of the households that are very very, uh, uh, very poor are for their own food, not for educate their own uh, um, uh, children. But besides that, and this is very important, most of these households also have microcredit, and most of the microcredit they are not for making and uh, uh, to be better entrepreneurs. So I think that one of the things that we have to relate is where does the uh, where are these mi uh, microfinance institutions given the credit? And most of the credit, if you see the database that the World Bank has, and it's in the internet and it is free, you are going to see that the profits are very high, and especially for women. So the answer is that women are very profitable. And this is, this is terrible. And we have to stop, and I would like to put in the panel in this report that we have to regulate microfinance. Especially so with the profits. So you're saying mi microfinance is in fact not doing women particularly any good. Not well. There are some projects that are very yeah. good, and International Development Bank. They have uh, special problems that has been very, how to say, very successful. Mm -hmm. But not all. Not all of them. So we have to be aware of what they are doing because in the first world, many people invest, and especially the funds, the pension funds, and the, well, the, the institutional investors, 
uh, invest in these microfinance institutions, and they are all around the world. They have different names in each particular country, but they are the same. It is, it is a real business. So I think we have to regulate that. And the other point is about technology. I think we have to invest a lot in education. And we just can't reduce the social budget. And another thing that I want to put on the floor is that, okay, and I saw this in Bolivia. I was invited a few years ago to Gregoria Passa Foundation. It was an NGO. And I saw how they work. Every, all the, the women are very happy going to work because now they are not going and they are not staying at home and they are around the no everybody is uh, doing sweaters uh, scarves whatever but that transportation for them that that they that it's so so terrible how they live that even one of the problems is nutrition because why nutrition because when they are let's say no, so you have a problem there because you don't have the nutrition to have a better ba baby. So even if this baby or this uh, little girl or boy goes to the school, he or she wouldn't finish school because he doesn't have or she doesn't have the nutrition to finish even primary school. Okay, so I'm, going, I'm just going to stop you there. We're talking there about uh, kind of that level of poverty, which means you can sort of you're stuck in a particular cycle. This is actually a question for FISA. Uh, it's the dual question of uh, poverty, lack of resources, and technology, and what can you actually do to transform it? And I think this is where yes, you come to the fore. That's where the foundation comes in. So absolutely, um, this is where I think the private sector can play a part, like we did back in Pakistan. Uh, to be able to understand what are all the problems, the real problems on ground that the poor are facing or the poor women are facing, and try to club together with uh, creative turnkey integrated solutions. I, I call them integrated and intelligent solutions uh, that actually sort of fulfill all multi-dimensional problems with multi-dimensional solutions by one very simple turnkey scalable model that can be replicated. Um, and that's what we did in Pakistan by a project, Lighting a Million Lives, where we went into completely off-grid, poorest of the poor population, uh, populated villages. No access to electricity, absolute darkness. And we gave them a model of energy access through solar energy. We, we electrified the entire village with solar and trained local women from the communities as light ladies. So they became the energy entrepreneurs, creating a sustainable model where, they create, where they're building income and renting the lanterns out to the villagers, while it became a model of economic change as well, because those energy entrepreneurs became the agents of change for every little village. So that's how sort of, you, know, you can tackle multiple solutions, multiple problems with diverse solutions with a trickle-down approach so that you can tap a larger base and make the model really scalable and adaptable, um, as Justin said. It can't be just a one-time go. It has to be scalable globally. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a few more questions from the room, and uh, then I'll be taking some comments from online. So if you are messaging in now, please message even more, and I will look at you in a second. Um, a woman at the front, in the front row, please. Where are the microphones? Woman in the front row, please. And then afterwards, woman over here. Thank you. Um, one of the uh, areas identified by the high-level panel is, is around 
wage gaps. Um, sorry, my name is Rachel Noble. I'm from ActionAid UK, um, and certainly from ActionAid's perspective, I mean, we'd, we'd really urge the panel to look more broadly at the decent work agenda because obviously it's not just about wage gaps. It's about being paid an equal equal wage for work of equal value, being paid a living wage, it's about the conditions of work and it's also about having a secure contract and what we're seeing increasingly is a trend towards the growing informalisation and casualisation of labour. It was already a trend before the crash, it's been accentuated um, substantially since then as the ILO has documented and the ILO has pointed out that it's increasing, uh, contributing to levels of inequality. Um, and this has a huge impact on um, women's ability to form and join unions and engage in collective action to, to claim their rights. Um, it it's massively undermines their economic inequality. It affects their, um, their sexual and reproductive health and rights in terms of denial of maternity leave. So my question really is, is you know, to what extent will the, the high-level panel be looking at this broader decent work agenda, um, thinking about women working in global supply chains, perhaps in particular, um, and the role of corporates um, in that regard. Thank you. And I'm just going to supplement that question um, with a comment from René Giov Giovarelli uh, at the resource, uh, uh, resource Equity, who is asking, again, a, a legal-based question, which is women in agricultural society do not have clear rights and control over the land they farm. Again, land rights are critical to economic empowerment, but that forms part of the same thing of what sort of contracts yeah. they, that should be available to them. Uh, we had a question over here. Um, hello, uh, my name is Mariella. I work, Mariella Magnelli, I work for Womankind Worldwide. And my question is, so, okay, so you have mentioned women's reproductive responsibilities and the burden of unpaid care work, which, as we know, is a main barrier to women's economic empowerment. Uh, my, I guess my question to the panel is, how do we overcome this barrier in a context of austerity measures and reduced protections for women? This applies, you know, to the example of Mexico, but also here in the UK. Okay, and we have uh, another question here. And then one in the back row, just behind. Um, hello, uh, it's Daria from Maxwell Stamp. Uh, my question touches somewhat on what Tina has said, and that is gender-responsive budgeting. Now, it's not a very new idea, but my question is precisely that. Um, why is it, do you think, despite this being around for, well, at least 20 years, we do not really see... Um, gender-responsive budgeting being implemented across the world in developed and developing countries. Okay. And the question in the back row? Just behind. Hi. I'm Thalia Kidder um, with Oxfam. And um, Oxfam and Christian Aid and, and others have pointed out that regressive tax policies and um, inadequate government revenues really hamper the ability of governments to be able to fund public services and pensions and education, um, which are a real critical foundation to um, be women being able to enter the labor force and uh, to benefit from the work that, that they do. Um, so I'm wondering how the panel sees that economic uh, policies such as uh, taxation and revenue collection will be um, addressed so that this isn't um, only a focus on how uh, individual women um, get jobs and stay in jobs. Okay, so we've got three areas here. They're quite big areas. Uh, one, we are going to finally tack it, tackle reproductive, uh, the, the fact that women are the mothers and doing the childcare. Um, we're also going to have a look at uh, the legal frameworks uh, as to how women 
uh, achieve some form of equality either in the workplace or on their own agricultural land? What are the sort of mechanisms we can uh, institute? And I'd like quite specific answers to these. And the third um, is uh, gender uh, on the basis of gender responsive budgets, which in fact also ties in from the question to Oxfam, which is how do you actually gear tax and revenue uh, to make uh, governments think financially how they place their money? So could I ask um, Justine first on... Uh, Reproductive rights, childcare, what do we do? So, well, I'll, I'll quickly try and canter through. So I think there's a bit of this that is about understanding, if you like, a life cycle approach to how we get women more economically empowered. So it's about changing um, prospects for women who are already, you know, adult and wanting to be able to have better opportunity, but then also building a, a stronger pipeline of educated girls. But part of that is about addressing the barriers one of the main barriers is that the minute girls hit puberty, they have risks of being married early, of starting a family before they're ready to, and that then means they drop out. And this is why the, gender, the, the data question that um, one raised is really, really important, because actually what we don't have is really good data about you know, where, where in the pipeline, as it were, hmm. women are dropping out. We, we broadly know, and a lot of our work in DFID is focused around adolescence because we know that's a big risk, but I'm going to guess there are other parts of it that we need to focus on too. So that's the first thing. Um, and sexual re reproductive health hmm. is part of how you manage that. The second one on legal frameworks, I agree. I mean, there are lots of uh, countries where s women still don't have the right to have a bank account, mm -hmm. to own land title, to inherit assets. And actually, those are major impediments to them being able to ever become economically active. Okay, um, you're, you're now sitting on a, on a kind of a UN um, panel. Yes. How, how do you, uh, on that panel, begin to affect... I mean, we can do the reports and so forth, mm -hmm. but how do we talk to the governments about getting those very basic mechanisms that exist in the Western world everywhere? But partly it's, it's setting... A, there is a public policy agenda around this. There's no getting away from mm. that. And part, part of that is setting out a business case. If you talk to um, the Ethiopian government, they have worked out that if they get every girl through secondary school, that's worth $4 billion a year to their economy. So and th that brings me on to um, the third bit, which is around the role of finance and treasury ministers and all of that in this. And... It's why this issue of gender-responsive budgeting is really important. And interestingly, on the World Bank, um, the previous finance minister of uh, Nigeria, Ngozi, that many people in this room may know, was really pushing to get finance ministries looking at gender-based budgeting so that this was really mainstreamed across government policy, starting in finance departments where often you know, policy runs out of. And the, the second point I really wanted to make on that is this matters because then actually that gets you into the broader domestic resource mobilisation agenda of how can you make sure that countries' taxation systems are set up for success so that as the economy grows and more jobs are created, A, that women have access to them, but B, when the economy grows, the tax receipts are there then for countries to reinvest in all of the public um, services that people rely on, just as we have here in, the, here in the UK, and things like the Addis Tax Initiative are critical, but these, this is like a big jigsaw <coughs> puzzle, really, where there are lots of these different pieces. The more you can put in place for each country, then the stronger their ability to affect women's economic empowerment will be. And that's the challenge. Yeah. There's no silver bullet. So we have to look in the round at how we can do as many of these things as possible 
and make sure that they take you beyond that kind of tipping point so that they really do have a dramatic change on the ground. Thank you, Justin. Tina, can I ask you about this question? Can I also ask you quite specifically where gender responsive budget, budgeting has worked? It's a good example. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to say one thing, which is um, we on the panel are here in listening mode and you are a room full of experts with amazing expertise. Um, so I would very much like to hear from you what you think we should do rather than simply tell us all these things that so we may not be experts in. You are experts. Um, you're in the field and in the trenches and everything else. So observations are as welcome as uh, demands for things that you think are the most important because it's quite overwhelming um, to sit here uh, and, <laughs> and realize that... Um, the, the time that we have to come up with the, with the proposal is, is short. So that's a plea, a plea for uh, this being a two-way conversation. Um, I, I think that there are a, a few things that have been said that I would point to. Um, and one is targets, I think. Um, the Women 20, which uh, is still in a very nascent stage, initiative of the G20, is an interesting one because um, mm -hmm. it would it would, of course, they, they are not binding, but it would set targets for the G20 member states, and that includes what, in my line of work, I call non-democracies. Um, and uh, so far, there, there's some receptivity to this. I think the second point has already been raised, and that is um, providing a new vocabulary for, for talking about these challenges. Uh, for better or worse, and I come from a human rights background and in my postgraduate education, the language of rights and morality has not really gotten very far. Mm -hmm. And we hear Secretary Greening talking about the business case, um, you know, which has uh, impressed me because, uh, you know, I talk about the data. Um, but in both, mm -hmm. both respects, we're talking about doing more than um, uh, stating things that need to be done, but putting some <coughs> structure around the scale of the challenge and the upside potential. Um, that's not enough, but it, it certainly helps at a time when uh, governments and advanced economies have less to give away um, uh, for all kinds of reasons which we might debate, but most people go into government to give things away, not to take things away. So this is a difficult um, challenge. For, for them to have. And then the third point is the, the mainstreaming idea. Um, also, perhaps counterintuitively or in ways that, you know, we might debate over a glass of wine is, is unfortunate. Um, making these challenges less about women and more about families, I, I think, also seems to resonate. So we talked about education uh, for, you know, women, uh, girls and reproduction. Well, how about men? When the Zika virus um, you know, uh, warnings came out and told women not to get pregnant. They didn't say to tell men not to, you know, kind of do their, <laughs> their contribute to their part of, of the bargain. So um, I find in my work that there's, it's like there's one conversation about people and then there's another conversation about women, um, which is interesting. You look at the polling data, for example, in the U.S. There's sort of voters... And then there's women voters. And I say, you know, how is this possible? So, you know, this, this is reframing things and describing them with a vocabulary that makes it harder and, and less convenient to ignore. And also we want to show how expensive it is to maintain these policies through inaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, can I ask um, Fisa about 
Pakistan in particular. Yeah. How responsive has your government been to the idea of uh, gender-responsive budgets? How high up the agenda? Um, I'll just, I'll just uh, quickly take you through exactly what's happening right now. Um, one, of course, the belief is that to actually get any real action achieved, there has to be a strong tie-in of the public and the private sector. The public sector can make the right policies, but the private sector has to come in to make sure those policies are happening. Goes for the pay wages, goes for the domestic workers, the migrants. Um, how responsive the government has been, Joy, I must say that after the high-level panel, the first meeting we had in March, I went back to Pakistan and met the uh, chief minister of Punjab, um, uh, the, the, province, the province Punjab, which is one of the key provinces, and uh, got them to set up a Women Economic Empowerment Council that is now working on an objective task force of 16 tasks, which includes everything from getting the home-based workers' policy approved to allocating a budget for women with infrastructure development for separate public toilets, working women hostels, childcare centers, um, a separate transportation for women, to getting the corporates to sign up the WEP UN Global Compact principles, to getting academia to set up mentoring councils. They have been, and it's a, it's a long list, it's a 16 objective list, but they've been extremely responsive and they've uh, immediately set down a committee which that's, has 12 ministers with me. you? It did it. It did. <laughs> I actually, uh, the panel members must remember when we had a meeting in March, I set down this call for action and I said, okay, God, I've said it, now what do I do? And I went back and I set up a meeting with the minister, with the chief minister. And I laid it out to him and I said, you know, I've, I've declared there, I'm sorry. Uh, and they accepted, they agreed. They set up the women committee, the, the council immediately with 12 ministers that are working very closely with me. And, and the, the good thing was, I, I thought the, the committee is done, now what? Progress is happening. And they're responding. Budgets have been allocated for the June Action Development Plan, the ADP in June. Um, so I thought that, you know, when you have your will in place and the right pressure and the and a platform like the UN High-Level Panel, things can happen. Okay, that's a, that's a governmental thing. Yeah. Um, well, there's questions coming from Kapila Hawhey at PwC, and this is actually a question, I think, to the whole room, which is, what key successes have you seen that large global corporates can support to drive women's economic empowerment? So whichever field you're working in, could you sort of sit down and think, well, what have you actually seen that has made a difference? What has changed the kind of status quo for the better? Do you have any examples of this? <laughs> well, um, I was just thinking uh, that a uh, few days ago, I was maybe one week ago, mm. I was in the uh, in a panel of APEC. The, okay. Uh, yes, APEC. APEC. Is APEC the Asian Pacific Economic? Well, and I decided to make a little research about microfinance in the APEC countries and how were the profits of this microfinance, especially with the credits mm. given to women. And uh, also relate, relating this with women economic empowerment and the substantial development goals. And what I see when I was, when they invite me to this conference, nothing was about the sustainable development uh, uh, goals. It wasn't in the agenda. So I decided to put this, and I think that we must work with G20 and APEC and all these international uh, meetings to put the sustainable development goals in an agenda and a priority task. And then women economic empowerment. If we don't work with these uh, big uh, meetings, well, we only, uh, maybe we have a very good report but we have to share all this and, well, to, to try to make some 
um, to, to relate, to, to engage more people in this one. Because I think that one of the most important things that I heard here is that we are working for the children of the uh, of yeah. the society of the future. I think we need to, we've talked a lot about kind of government and kind of high-level committees now. Now I think we're trying to sort of talk about how to actually let these things develop in societies which often happens through corporate as well as government action mm -hmm. so if some of you could throw some ideas on that um, I'd like to take a few more questions from the room please I know there was somebody at the back here who had a question Hi, my name is Antoinette Salah I'm an agricultural consultant thank you for the panellists um, I'm very passionate about agricultural development and there hasn't been no mention about the rural women and their uh, work in, um, in, in society, in their communities. So my question to the panel is, how will the panel ensure that the rural women have the same rights as their urban, um, as urban women, women? In terms of childcare, I mean, it was mentioned earlier on at the, uh, by um, Claire, but also in terms of uh, training and education and acquired skills, we see that many women in many uh, emerging uh, countries and developing countries do lack the training in agriculture, in farming, in the know-how. It's not about just uh, graduating, having degrees, but actually knowing uh, how to, to, do, to do the business of farming in terms of uh, improving their productivity, but also their production by accessing modern tools, modern equipment. Uh, and also I have a question to Fiza. Um, how uh, is access to solar energy impacting the lives of women? Thank you. OK, we have another question over right at the front here. Yep. Thank you, Jessica Woodruff from the, World, uh, from the Gender and Development Network. Um, I wanted to answer the question um, that was put by somebody online about what corporates could do. Because um, one of the things that I think many of us have seen is that what's really effective is an increase in public services, um, whether it's healthcare, whether it's childcare, whether it's water. That's what reduces women's unpaid burden, therefore allows them to take up work opportunities. Increases in public services requires money. So the most important thing that corporates can do is pay their taxes. And those corporates that are already paying their taxes, the most important thing that they can do is not lobby against regulation of other corporates who are not paying their taxes. Somebody just to your right. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Michelle Chavunga, and I'm a senior consultant looking at global policy issues and also a business owner. I used to work in banking uh, prior to setting up my own company. My, uh, it's not really a question. I think it's more of uh, you know, providing a solution, really, to some of the issues mm -hmm. that have been raised today. I think one of the key issues, if you're going to tackle it at scale, as you were saying, is very much also working on the ground level and working with local people and really trying to work with local women in communities as well as men, engaging the men on the issue, because I think that's quite critical. Um, and one way of doing that is obviously engaging the women, but also you're looking at things, bigger things, like there's a whole huge you know, range of SMEs that are coming up, especially those led by women and in many of the communities and many of the developing countries as well. So I think it is really important to want to provide education you know, to these women about what, be it SMEs, uh, be it or whatever sector you're talking about, but also providing mentoring and education within those local communities. And then those women, I think it was, I can't remember who on the panel mentioned, the agents of change. I think those are, you know, the agents of change who will make a real difference, I think, for the long term in terms of sustainability. So I think that's quite critical. Another, you know, sort of 
um, issue that I wanted to kind of point out is that I think there should be closer engagement, be it government, be it private sector, be it you know, uh, local community groups working together collectively. Mm. Um, you know, very much so around, you know, government departments, I think, joining our forces. We hear a lot from international development, you know, uh, departments, from the whole range of government development, but I think they need to unite and work together a bit more closely. Okay. Um, and then last thing, really, I think in terms of scaling up, I mean, you look at things like the, in the humanitarian circles, we very much, you know, talk around cash transfer programs and things like that. I think those are the things that you can look into. They are working in certain mm. circumstances. They don't work in everything, but I think those are the things that you can look at to scale up and increase. Thank you. So we had a question over here, or a statement, or a comment, <laughs> or a useful contribution. <laughs> um, hello, my name is Fatima Kelleher. I'm with Wise Development, which is a network of consultants working on women's empowerment, in particular economic empowerment. Um, there are a lot of big budget programs happening on the ground um, in private sector development and economic development. Um, market systems approaches is, I suppose, one of the largest areas in this. And within that, um, there are huge women numbers. So talking about targets and the importance of targets and the opportunities, perhaps, that we can have in order to harness large numbers is certainly there. But there are huge concerns at the same time. Yeah. And one of those is that you know, when we talk about women's economic empowerment, a lot of these programs, because they're in the private sector development field or sector and economic development sector, don't really look at women's economic empowerment as their primary aim. So I'm actually consulting on quite a few of those at the moment. In northern Nigeria, in Nigeria, sorry, more broadly, there are about five or six going on at the moment. Um, and there's a real struggle in terms of getting a we analysis into those development programs. I suppose my question really, therefore, is going forward with the high-level panel, you know, bringing together this sort of group of experts, how do we ensure that that group of programs, which are very big budget, have the potential to offer us lots of research data, if only we will actually create budget envelopes within them for research, meaningful research, which at the moment, in my experience, is not happening in the way that it should do. How do we ensure that they come into the fold of this debate in the same way, and not just those very targeted women's economic empowerment programs, which do tend to have smaller numbers overall? Mm -hmm. It's a question at the back. Hi, my name is Claire from Tier Fund. Um, so Tier Fund, um, for us, the key is relationships in terms of answering the question around women's economic empowerment. And some of our work has been brought out of um, the work that we've been doing around sexual and gender-based violence. So we've got a programme around transforming masculinities, which is getting together men and boys to talk about issues around gender, masculinity, protection, and also um, faith. So lots of communities we work in, faith leaders are real key role models in that community. So asking the panel, how are you going to plan to engage with faith leaders as role models to change attitudes and behaviour at community and international level? Okay. And one more here. Tina, my, uh, mine are just comments. Yeah. Okay, and it's from a micro level. Okay. Very micro level. Uh, Can I just ask you to keep them relatively short? Yes. Thank you. One of the things Afisa said was that the Solar Energy Project helped women. The whole question is the, empower, the, the ownership, because women took the ownership of the solar energy. And, 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 that's, and that's an important aspect. The other thing is, I agreed with the lady just now about culture, religion, uh, um, attitudes. And I think uh, Justine also uh, referred to attitudes. Uh, very briefly, I was uh, working with UNESCO at that stage. I went to um, northern Kenya uh, in the desert 
they had identified someone who was, uh, it was a man who was uh, uh, the hero, the shifter, mover, whatever, shaker of this whole thing of women's um, uh, uh, doing away with women, uh, uh, F FGM. And so I connected, I was told to connect with him and we went out together. We were together like for the whole week. On the way back to Nairobi, I just asked a very silly, stupid question and I said, you know, I'm, I'm sure your, your daughters are, uh, haven't been circumcised. And he took a deep breath. And he said to me, I'll tell you because we are friends. He said, I circumcise my daughters. Oh my and he's a champion against. And I said, why? And he said, who will marry them? Who will marry them? And this whole thing of attitudes and faith and culture. And I, I was just, I was quiet eyed because I'd been with him, he was talking passionately about doing away with this practice. And yet he said, who will marry my daughters? And clearly there was pressure from his wife, from, his, from the elders, everybody else. So this is going to be a very slow uh, movement of changing uh, attitudes. And then the other one thing I just want to say is that although we may give uh, women um, economic empowerment, uh, I've been in a case where um, a group of women had no savings, nothing. Uh, they were, in fact, women of the street. And a group of nuns took them. Uh, the bank was quite far away, so they, they taught them dressmaking, hairdressing, um, basket weaving, a, a whole lot of skills. And they began to make money, and they gave it to the nuns, and the nuns uh, had an accounting sheet with them. And they would go to the bank once a week and put their money in the bank with, with their names there. Once these women had left the, the, the center, there was a problem of demand for their skills. So we're talking about empowering women, there was the supply. There were far too many of them with hairdressing. There were far too many of them with whatever. And someone mentioned the thing about the rural women. It's this whole thing of getting the economy moving, yeah. <laughs> the demands sector, because supply will then come in. Absolutely. Okay, those, those are a few comments I wanted to make. Thank you. They're, they're very interesting. I think uh, particularly the um, changing the, the culture yeah. around these yeah. things, which, in fact, doesn't necessarily relate distinctly to money, but clearly um, to the economy, but clearly does have a huge impact. Um, I'd also just like to throw in a quick uh, question from online, um, which was about actual specific regional differences. This is from Abby M. Kadir at Sheffield University. Um, and he wonders whether we're considering, you guys are considering compiling evidence by region, e.g. Africa, Latin America, Asia, systematically, as the constraints faced by women are different but not universal uh, across regions. He also says well, he's uh, surprised we do not have an expert on Africa in the panel of speakers, uh, but I think we have a few experts actually in the audience. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about culture and how what you've understood from the data you, you've understood about different cultures? No, yes. Uh, you can see you, you can you can see it in the data that the, the the part of the world actually with the lowest rate of female labor force participation is South Asia, uh, followed by the, the Middle East. In fact, you've already you said <laughs> sorry Pakistan coming coming in last, um, but we're seeing acceleration in in many other areas. Uh, I, I would give an example, by the way, in in developed countries, just so that we sort of have a contrast. If you think about um, one social agenda that has made enormous progress over the last 25 years, it's marriage equality. Um, and that's a very interesting test case. Now, uh, you know, it's, it's not exactly the same, but social attitudes toward gay marriage, marriage equality, have changed more rapidly than any others. Yeah. 
And it's, it's an interesting um, parallel. So we mustn't think that they can never change. As much as we spend time in cultures and we get a bit nativist when we do this, and I have 10 years of field work experience behind me before I came to banking too, um, change does happen. Why did that campaign work so well? And in Ireland, um, a country where the role of the clergy was very powerful indeed, um, how did that happen? And if there's lessons to be learned from social attitudes uh, on, um, on gay marriage and toward homosexuality in general, can we not apply those to, to women uh, in a more effective way? And can we not apply them in different contexts? Um, so if you talk about mm. South Asia and the Middle East as having the least female engagement in, so did you say in the economy or the employment market? In the labor force. In the labor force. This is less to do with the ec economic power of those countries and more to do with the attitudes, the cultures the culture. of women working. Well, and we have to break out the, uh, the GCC countries versus Arab League countries because they have very, very different levels of, of development and growth and everything else. <laughs> but one of the things that's interesting to think about is how even in the Arab League countries, investment in um, uh, you know, parity in education for boys and girls um, has worked and has worked very well. So, you know, framing things in terms of return on investment is important. But the Arab Spring, to, you know, had a lot of girls uh, and women involved. Uh, you know, again, as a social scientist, I look at uh, demographic cohorts, younger people, girls and boys, men and women, expecting more, expecting to participate in society. When they aren't given those opportunities, they might be suppressed maybe for a long time, but it won't go away. Hmm. Justine, would you like to comment on uh, on how a UN panel can begin to shift culture specifically? I think I think it's important to diagnose the problem and to understand it if you want to be able to fix it. And what's coming out of this is that we shouldn't just see women's economic empowerment as a finance issue. Actually, there is a, a heavy element of attitudes, culture, and we've seen this. I think we can learn a lot, actually, from progress on FGM in many countries. In some cases... It's about marriage, and, and actually behind that might be an issue of dowry that's there too. And how do you fix that? Well, you actually fix it through education and jobs and having women and girls seen as something not just a... That's, you know, that's not the only value that they have to the family is the dowry when they get married. So it's all inextricably linked, um, but actually, the key to success is understanding how to sort of steadily unpick it. And, and in, in some families and communities, it will be more about the economics. In others, it will be much, much more about just expectations and culture and family pressure on girls to just simply conform to what's expected, irrespective of <coughs> um, the money around it. And... Therefore, the answer to this, and as in so many other policy areas, is you sort of need this last mile element to it. So you can have an overall framework which has got the basic elements of a successful strategy, but in the end it needs to be tailored. And if you talk to um, the government in Ethiopia and, and some of the ministers who've been involved in that approach to try and steadily bear down on FGM, they literally have had to work with 85-plus different languages and different community groups to try and tailor their programs. And, and I'm afraid that's partly why this is such a difficult agenda to move forward on, but that, I'm afraid that's what we have to confront, that there's a complexity to it that means 
you might have some basic strategy, but then it needs to be tailored for that last mile on, on the community level. And you need to identify the community leaders and the local role models, and that's where it all starts to, to get pulled together. So in a sense, what you're saying is it's a bit like painting by numbers. You'll know what the basic picture looks like, but you'll have a slightly different shade of response depending on where you're going to try and put it in place successfully. Okay, so Fisa? Yes, I, I just want to quickly add something to what Justin just said in terms of um, adapting programs for, uh, for making it more culturally acceptable and more ex you know, acceptable to, the, to, to both genders. Um, the project that we had for empowering rural women, of course, it wasn't that easy to go into completely bottom of the pyramid rural villages in Pakistan and say that, you know, we want to empower your women here. We're going to make them the agents of change. There was a lot of resistance. Um, and then we, we learned to adapt and we learned to make it, uh, make it more acceptable. How we did that was that we, uh, we added an element of creating a technical agent from every village, a male member of the village, usually the husband or the brother or the father of the light lady, and giving him the technical trainings to monitor and maintain the village, uh, the solar charging station. So that basically gave him the, the added empowerment that he's part of a very critical part of the model. It actually did become a critical part of the model because now it's technically sustainable too. And it made both the forces work together towards our eventual goal. So yes, adaptation and bringing the other gender to understand um, the role of women economic empowerment is critical, especially when you go down to the field. Okay, um, I, 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 we're going to come to a close. Um, we're getting to the end of our session. Um, it's been incredibly broad, and I think uh, yeah. because of the breadth of discussion, I think you might realise the challenges that are actually facing the panel and what they come together. And we've covered <laughs> everything, and not you know even in any depth. There was a question on on the agricultural communities we haven't answered. There was a question on technology we couldn't even get through. There's a question on childcare we didn't come to any answers on. I think actually this last discussion on culture and the economy has begun to kind of tease out one of the problems, which is that one can talk about economy, the economy, we can talk about business, but in fact one has to talk about the cultures that have to change in order to accept, to actually start pushing um, business to change as well. Um, I'm going to ask the, the panel just to make some very short, very brief final comments, and I think there will be time afterwards if you have any specific questions um, to speak to them. So, Tina, would you... Yes. Like to sum up in three sentences. Three sentences. Um, map the problem with as much substance as possible. Um, focus on the accelerators that can help the most people in the shortest period of time and maintain the momentum. If you focus on the problems, you won't get started. Fisa? Mm -hmm. <coughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, very briefly, um, I, I think after mapping the problems, identify the priority areas which, will, which are critical. Uh, I, after identification of the priority areas, of course, leading to solutions and a strategy of achieving the solutions. We all know the solutions, but the how is very important, how to achieve it. Um, and then take a step further from advocacy to action. And uh, in addition to advocacy, create those demonstrations and case studies that can then be replicated with scale around the world. Well, uh, I would like to say that economy change culture, and it is very important because the family, the characteristics of the family five decades ago were father, mother, and children, and maybe two or three, four, five children. Now the families, mother with their children, father with their children, grandparents with their children, and we have changed a lot. So I think the economy, and especially because 
many, many women are, uh, are in the labor market. Many, many, not only culture, but may, um, other things are, are transforming this world. Okay, there's a, in fact, what I didn't mention was there was an, uh, the ODI did a Twitter poll uh, as to what the biggest barriers to women's economic empowerment was, and it takes up your point, which is the structure of the family has changed dramatically, and 51% of people said it's unpaid work and childcare, and what needs to happen to change is it's the family structures that need to change. Justine. Hmm. Okay, well, I'll try and sort of add to what people have said. I think it comes down to more and better jobs, but also not forgetting the informal sector. Um, so you, you need approach that covers the, the whole of that. Um, I think there is an issue on um, attitudes and then data. I've lumped those two things together so that I still have room for a third thing to say, <laughs> which is going to be don't forget men and boys. And um, what we haven't really talked about much today is, is the men and boys piece of this, but it is critical. And it comes back to Tina's point in a way. So we, and, and I think business can play a big role in changing attitudes of men and boys because they're often the employees in the more formal sector that are there. Yeah. So, um, so that would be my final one. Well, thank you very much. I don't, this discussion obviously does not end here. Um, you've all got the contact details for the ODI. Um, questions that are open, please feel free to kind of continue your responses forward and they will get forwarded on. Um, I'd like to thank each of the panel members uh, this, uh, who've taken uh, time and energy to appear here to open the discussion uh, and to bring their own expertise to it. Um, and I'd also like to thank uh, the High-Level Panel Secretariat, uh, DFID and the ODI for organising this uh, event this afternoon. And also to thank the audience, both those who have turned up in person and those uh, online, for all your contributions. There are refreshments afterwards. There will be an opportunity to speak to some of the speakers afterwards more, with more specific conversations. Um, and thank you very much for all being here today to make this event possible. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.